with the uh, the focus of media attention on Alice Springs, the fact remains that violence against Aboriginal women in particular has been happening right across our country and for a very long time. Violence far too often resulting in women disappearing altogether. My uh, next guest will tell us that, in fact, we have no idea how many Aboriginal women have gone missing in this country. Amy McQuire is a Durrambul and South Sea Islander writer and journal and a postdoctoral Indigenous fellow at the Queensland University of Technology in her award-winning essay for Mianjin, The Act of Disappearing on the silences that shroud the disappearances of Aboriginal women and girls, she tells us the archives are full with so-called missing women, and she's here to tell us why that word camouflages so much evil. You last heard Amy on the Little Wilders program in October 2021, talking about the impact of COVID on Wilcania, on deaths in custody, and her determination to keep the spotlight on cases of black injustice. Good to talk to you again, Amy. And since we last spoke, you finished your PhD on media representations of violence against Aboriginal women. And you've given yourself the gruelling task of sitting through a number of inquests in Queensland. Can we start by telling us some of the stories you have heard? For example, the case of Monique Club. Yeah, so just for um, your listeners' knowledge, I mean, in the past year in Queensland, we've had three inquests into the disappearances of Aboriginal women and they've all been disconnected from each other, but they all said very similar things and I think that's part of the problem with a lot of these cases and it was certainly the problem in Canada where they were being framed as Indigenous crimes where I saw it, what was emerging for me in the inquest is that there was a pattern of disappearing Aboriginal women and particularly targeting Aboriginal women. And so the first inquest I actually sat on was in um, Monique Club, who was an Aboriginal woman, woman who suddenly went missing from suburban park in Beanley in Brisbane and no one had seen her afterwards. And as I sat in on the inquest, I saw all of these silences and there was this real, um, the reason I felt that Monique was still missing or what I called disappeared was because because police have effectively um, halted their investigation a month after she disappeared and yet the focus was not on them or their failure. The focus became about Monique and her being responsible for her own disappearance. And it seemed unbelievable to me that an Aboriginal woman who was so loved and so connected to her family in Harvey Bay could just disappear and everyone just be comfortable with it and that it just seemed to be no one seemed to care. You know what I mean? And I think the reason people don't care is because there's a continual silence In her case, the argument was she'd uh, died in a nearby park intoxicated, but that's a dubious summary. Oh, and, you know, like, um, as I said in there, you had state, the Queensland Police's own search and rescue experts, so the top experts on search and rescue in the state, saying, well, we're 100% sure she could not have died in this park. And they did three searches for her in the park. And it's not a huge park. It's right next to Beanley Marketplace. So what happened is I think that because of the police was so focused on her being an intoxicated Aboriginal woman, then they'd criminalised her, which 
she wasn't at the time. They just claimed she was responsible for her own um, disappearance. And so the other forms of investigation, whether there was a likely perpetrator, where she might have gone once she left the park, whether there was a potential for violence and potential for targeting her, was just totally erased in the police considerations. Um, and there was no um, pressure on the police to find her, which I think is a huge issue. You know, when you, we often say, you know, if um, white women go missing, there are the reams of media coverage. There's a huge focus. Public pressure is so important. In Monique's case, there was nothing. Now, um, there are cases of Aboriginal women's deaths where we do know what happened. Veronica Nelson, Lynette Daly yeah. and Miss Do. But what you say is we have no idea of the true number. Why not? Well, I mean, for a long time, no one was counting. And I just use the Canadian example is that they started counting because of the fact that so many families were crying out for their women who had disappeared and they had been met with so much apathy from the media and the police. So it actually began with grassroots Aboriginal women organisations counting and the numbers continue to grow. In Australia, we haven't even begun counting. You know, there are media attempts to look at the data set, but it's always dependent on police categorizations of missing, which is something I critique because I saw in the coronial process how um, they term uh, the term missing is used as sort of like this cover for what is actually happening and particularly making potential perpetrators absent. So we have a specific phenomenon in this country around the term walkabout which is distinctly applied to Aboriginal women and Aboriginal children. As though, as though um, this was a cultural tradition of going missing. Yes. Yeah, and that has a long history. You know, I was reading about it, but that's a whole other story. But they claim to have gone walkabout as if they've just gone away on their own accord and maybe they'll turn up. But what it does is it absolves the police of their failure to search for them, which is their job. You know what I mean? But the reason I think they're not searching is because what I found, you like you mentioned Veronica Nelson and you mentioned Miss Jew, there are connections between the criminalisation of Aboriginal women and disappearing them into watch houses out of sight, into jail houses and the connection with the disappearing of Aboriginal women outside. You know what I mean? So there are key connections to that. Um, that, in the way that, that word missing, as we said at the beginning, you know, obfuscates, camouflages, uh, misdirects yes. in so many ways yes. because uh, it. Yep. it suggests there are no perpetrators or violence enacted. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. It becomes the woman who is not here to speak becomes responsible for their own fate, you know, and what happens is they're blamed, but they're not just blamed, but their whole community is blamed. So one of the problems with the current media discourse is that when we speak of violence against Aboriginal women, Aboriginal men or whole communities or culture in the form of customary law is always blamed rather than this state-sanctioned violence that we are seeing continually being perpetrated against the bodies of women. And so missing says quite a lot, you know what I mean? But even when Aboriginal women go missing and should be classed as high risk, they're still not classed as high risk by the police. And we've seen that in a number of inquests, most pertinently um, Constance May Watcher, who was deemed missing for 10 months before she was found murdered. And her family were the ones who said it was high risk, but the police never considered it a high-risk high case, despite she was intensely vulnerable at the time. Let's go back to Money um, Club. The coroner criticised the cops, yet you say there are other cases, cases of plenty, where the language used by people in the justice system, well, has been less than helpful. I, I mean, I think the language of the, like in the coronial process, but throughout the whole justice system, sort of works to silence 
the very specific oppressions of violence that Aboriginal women face. And that's, you know, I'm just picking one out, you know, the, the language of natural causes, which suggests that the deaths, particularly in watch houses or jails, are a natural cause when really when you look at the cases and you sit through the inquest, you see all of these layers of violence that contributed to, you know, the refusal to grant um, appropriate health care in Veronica Nelson's case. You know what I mean? All of these are violent and yet they're obscured by all of these terms that only work to conceal what is actually happening, but also speak to the benevolence of those who should be actually providing a duty of care. So they'll often come up and say, you know, oh, we're very sorry that happened, but, you know, it was a natural cause. So they're the benevolent ones when really we see them as the ones with the power who are enacting these forms of violence that are made invisible so that, you know, when the media report on the coronal process, they're reporting on that language. They're not reporting on the language of blackfellas unless you crouch it in that activist language or that language which, which blackfellas want to speak of, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does, Amy McGuire. And uh, in parenthesis, I want you to talk briefly about Crown Prosecutor Nanette Rogers, who uh, painted Aboriginal culture as, quote, punitive and violent and I guess laid the, the groundwork for the NT intervention. Oh, well, she definitely did. And I think the important thing here is that it was coming from the voice of a white witness and a witness who had power in the justice system, who redirected the focus not onto the justice system that she was a part of, that was not only enacting brutal violence against Aboriginal men, but also Aboriginal women. So Aboriginal women are being locked up at ridiculous rates, you know. But she redirected that onto Aboriginal communities themselves and specifically onto customary law. And yet there's a whole history. And if you look at, for example, you know, the work of Talia Anthony, who's looked at customary law in the territory, customary law was actually put in place to claim Aboriginal men as savage and uncivilised, you know, so it was seen in that way, but it had never been treated lenient, used to treat these cases leniently. So there was a complete inaccuracy there, but the use of sensationalised cases told through this clinical, objective voice of the white witness had a huge power in painting these communities as depraved and also Aboriginal women as without a voice. So she had to be their voice. And that was the problem. It led to the anti-intervention, you know, and we're still seeing the fallout of the anti-intervention today. Amy, violence against Aboriginal women is all too often portrayed in the media as, uh, well, simply black-on-black -black crime. Not yeah. the case, is it? Not always the case, certainly. No, no, and that's another one of those languages <laughs> that comes up, and it really works to obscure again the historical context of why this violence is happening. The fact is that it's not only a settler colonial country which was founded on the targeting of Aboriginal women for sexual violence, but also these waves of continual government government neglect that takes control away from Aboriginal communities to be able to determine our futures, to be able to determine how we keep women and children safe, but is very hands down and punitive and about taking away resources. And that's what always happens. And then you wonder, what, and then these debates become very circular, you know, as we're seeing in Alice Springs, it's just the same thing coming up again and again, but we're not looking at, well, actually what has governments done or not done um, to solve things, you know, whereas they're still blaming, blaming Aboriginal communities in the, in the meantime. We need to acknowledge there are Aboriginal perpetrators too, though. My thing is about centering the Aboriginal woman as a victim. Um, because what I've found is even in cases where there are black perpetrators, um, Aboriginal women are always marginalised. And I have worked on a lot of cases where there have been 
Aboriginal men who have been the perpetrators and yet the focus, it's, it's really strange how sometimes their Aboriginality in a sense is sanitised because of the silencing of the victim. Like it's quite a, a complicated issue. But I think the fact that Aboriginal women are continually dehumanised no matter who the perpetrator is, is the main point. And if we centre Aboriginal women in these conversations of violence, we come up with a different sort of framework and a way of seeing things. But also I would like to say a lot of Aboriginal men who are perpetrated of violence have also had violence done to them. And so you see that long history as well. And the fact that the carceral systems, which solutions are always based on, actually do not solve violence, but instead re-perpetrate violence and end up it, it doesn't heal people, but it continues these cycles of violence. So I think it's a more complex debate than the media has had or is ever willing to have. Okay, the media. Let's let's uh, now look at the media. Uh, the PhD looks at the role of the media and representation of Aboriginal women who have gone missing or been disappeared. And you found that uh, the media's treatment of the murdered women further disappears them. In what sense? Yeah, because the other thing I sort of looked at is disappearance, not as just the original perpetrators who are disappearing the women, but this framework that allows this to happen and allows certain perpetrators to act with impunity. So it's not just the police, um, it's not just the state who acquiesces to this by their failure to prevent or sanction these perpetrators, but it's also the media, not just through the way they report, but their silences. So they're you know, I talk a lot about if you talk to any blackfella in community, they will have a story of a death or a disappearance of one of their close loved ones, which was never fully investigated and which there was no justice for. And that is a part of the silence. And that's why we're not seeing this issue raised as the crisis that it actually is. And it's slowly emerging through the work of Aboriginal women, particularly, for example, Four Corners last year, looked at cases of violence and really centred victims of violence and their families in that. But it's only been very recently that we have been able to have control in some sense. But the media are so complicit. And for example, with Monique, I found more cases, more articles on her before she disappeared when she was being criminalised in the local court reporting. So she was criminalised in her home community. And then it was her home community, Harvey Bay Police, even though she hadn't disappeared from there, who was given carriage of the investigation. So you see the links there? You make the point that Aboriginal families have to go to greater lengths to get media attention and that their testimonies are still only validated when backed by, quote, authoritative accounts. Yeah, like that's incredibly true from what I've seen. You know, you sit through a lot of these cases and you see things that have obviously happened because of the wounds on on the body of the women and the, you know, the acts that have been done to them, but they're spoken of in a different way. And it's only through the advocacy of black families who continue to fight and continue to turn up that their deaths are ever investigated or their disappearances are ever investigated at all. And this is very much true of um, cases of death in custody is, is that there's often no movement until Aboriginal families come up and start fighting for their loved ones. And they have to continue to go it, nothing is ever given to them. They have to fight for attention. They have to fight for media attention. They have to fight to break the silence. You know what I mean? And they're sort of never acknowledged in that. But all of the cases you hear about in the media, there's always the groundswell of the advocacy of the families who shouldn't have to fight that way. They should be able to grieve. They should be able to heal. They should be able to remember their loved ones. But instead, they're, they're given the, own, the onus put, is put on them, this weight, this heavy weight to continue to fight 
fight to make sure that the deaths of their loved ones are recognised and that justice, some form of justice comes from it. And I don't see that happening in many other cases. It always happens to Aboriginal families. In introducing you, I made the point that there's so much focus on violence in Alice Springs to the exclusion of other issues. Now, Albanese yesterday recognised the failure of multiple governments and that the issue is also one of intergenerational disadvantage. What do you make of how this is being portrayed? Well, I think it's it's that circular, you know, the media report on Aboriginal affairs, like there are, you know, I've heard it termed like a goldfish swimming around in circles. So they often um, look at what's happening now without looking at the undercurrent. And these times of crisis are only times of crisis when it's political crisis. So if you think back to Howard, um, John Howard, when he launched the intervention, which we're seeing the fallout of a lot of those policies now in Alice Springs, when he launched that, he said it was a national emergency. And yet he was sitting on reports around violence against women for like 18 months prior. He would never visit Aboriginal communities. So it was only an emergency when it was a political emergency for him when he was about to lose power. So it's always about the interests of white people and particularly white politicians, those in power. And the Northern Territory, Northern Territory government, federal governments have a long history of using violence in the body of black women and black children in order to launch really horrendous policies. They don't care about Aboriginal people at all. You know what I mean? They care about their own um, keeping power. Amy, I'm well aware that listeners want to hear you say something on The Voice. Now, yesterday we saw uh, Lydia Thorpe move to the crossbench, the dissenting voice about The Voice, uh, with the Greens now, which the Greens now say they'll support. What do you make of how The Voice debate has been portrayed both by politicians and by the media? Yeah, I mean, I think for the one part, um, there's a long history to The Voice and why that The Voice um, proposal was made. And yet the media and politicians have had a long time to have this debate. You know what I mean? Like this has been a long process. And yet I felt like that very early on because Turnbull just knocked back The Voice proposal straight away, it was starved of oxygen. And so we are here now where we're coming to a referendum and all this other racist rhetoric is coming up. But what I feel has been silenced is that, you know, dissent, you know, in the form of adequate black questioning that people do have about the voice has been overshadowed as well. And I know there is a consensus around the voice from those who are involved in the dialogues, but there are also Aboriginal people who don't know anything about the voice and haven't been told about it. And that's many people in community and they have questions. And I think some of those questions are embodied by what Lydia Thorpe has said. So I think her departure from the Greens is powerful in a sense, but that's not to say that the voice doesn't have merit. It's just that we, a lot of Aboriginal people haven't had the right to have questions raised, particularly around limitations or, or what they think a voice can or cannot do. And I think that's been part of the problem is that in many ways, ironically, the voice debate has been taken out of the hands of a lot of black fellows. And that's where you see a lot of disenchantment. And it's why a lot of people do support Lydia as well. You've just been listening to the most eloquent Amy McGuire, journalist, postdoctoral fellow at QUT. Her essay for Mianjin, The Act of Disappearing, on the silences that shroud the disappearances of Aboriginal women and girls won the 2022 Hilary McPhee Award. Amy is a Donnebel woman and a South Sea Islander, and her first book, Black Witness, is due to be published in the near future, and 
you must come back to talk about that, Amy. Thank you for your time. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.